Hey all! Welcome to Film Suck, a Patreon podcast in which we ponder the work of art in the age of crap cinema. I'm Eileen Jones. I'm Dolores McElroy. And today we are talking about the great film star Elizabeth Taylor. In fact, we're titling this episode The Last Star. Um, this is going to be one of our series of star studies we're doing that we're calling Great Old Broads. Um, so just so you're prepared for what's to come. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, she's Elizabeth Taylor is famous enough that I think she's <laughs> kind of in a category of needs no introduction. Mm-hmm. I may, maybe I'm, I think you disagree a little more than me. For you, it's like, well, Marilyn and Marilyn Monroe and Audrey Hepburn are, are in the you know, yeah. for, some re- for whatever reason, evergreen stars and Elizabeth Taylor isn't. I initially, when I outlined this episode, I saw an old outline I had done and I had said, like them, Elizabeth Taylor goes on being ever famous. But I, I know since then we've talked and you've made clear you don't agree with that. I will, you know, this is just coming from the film teacher in me, obviously mm. as a film lover uh, amongst, you know, people who like the movies. Of course, everyone mm. knows who Elizabeth Taylor is. But I think among the younger generations, they don't, they've probably heard her name, but they haven't, they don't know, they don't know anything about her in a way that they know Audrey Hepburn was in Breakfast at Tiffany's. If they mm. don't know any Marilyn Monroe right. movies, they at least know that white dress. You know, they know even less about Elizabeth right. Taylor Although some able, some may be able to say like, wasn't she Cleopatra? But like, that would be really, that would be really like spectacular if they knew that. Yeah. Yeah. So I feel like her, even though she was like such a juggernaut of fame um, Mm -hmm. during her lifetime, it's, it's certainly not that she's been forgotten. Like, let's not oversell Mm -hmm. this, but her image is not one that's like reproduced on t-shirts and posters at your local Walmart, like Mm -hmm. we've been saying, you know, so and I think there are reasons for that. I think she represents a kind of feminine sexuality that is still very scary. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so she's, you know, there's, you know, whereas Marilyn Monroe is kind of cotton candy and yielding mm-hmm. and fun and poppy. And Audrey Hepburn is both ladylike and, um, you know, a, a certain version of classy in quotation marks mm-hmm. that translates to today. Um, Liz is neither of those things. So I think she's well, less easy yeah. to sell. And I think there's an interesting thing too, where, both Audrey Hepburn and Marilyn Monroe have have almost a huge separate presence in photographs. Yes. For crazy reasons. Audrey Hepburn, because she was so fashion influential in a way that people seem to regard as she's just perpetually. Like, remember, <laughs> D- Dolores was my, my t- teaching assistant in a class we did on stardom, and, and we had everyone dress up on Halloween as a star, and half the popula- <laughs> female population of the class showed up as Audrey Hepburn. Yep. In, in in the breakfast at Tiffany's little black dress or some, you know, or the, the uh, fabulous, you know, slim pants and turtleneck and you know, yeah. thing, you know, modern, high modern look from um, a bohemian look from uh, what's it called? Uh, I know it so well. Funny face. Mm-hmm. Um, so so all of the, but it was mainly the breakfast. At and with Marilyn Monroe, she just did. She was considered such a prized figure as someone as an iconic figure just in photos she had a whole other life in photos i was related to startup yeah but i th- i think that's why marilyn marilyn monroe is a little mysterious but you're probably right it's partly it's just that easy she's got a kind of easy access sexuality oh definitely that that stays yeah like what you would yeah. you see her on like 1950s nostalgia diner walls like fuddruckers right. at the mall you know Very much, and like yes. you can't eat a hamburger while like elizabeth taylor is judging you eating <laughs> eating a hamburger that's not yeah. easy to live with <laughs> so. yeah, she, she 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 does she's gorgeous but she has 
epic resting bitch face. She really <laughs> does. She really does. And it's part of the star quality. Yeah. There's something, yeah, as you say, judgy. Yeah. Her whole look. For sure. Yeah. And I think, yeah, I, I think you're right in that if you have to rely on on just the films, and, you know, obviously she's gorgeous in all those shots, but it's like she doesn't have a separate ever revived life in photographs for some reason. Right. Um, that's peculiar. Right. Right. Um, Okay, so anyway, but let's let's sort of plunge. Should we go to the roots first, or should we do a star image thing first to sort of remind people? I, what we're well, maybe we'll talk. Well, the reason that we're calling her the last star, which is mm-hmm. a title that's been often attached to her, is because she comes up. Uh, she's born in 1932 when the studio system is already in swing, and mm-hmm. she uh, is a she's a child star picked up by the mm-hmm. studios, and she transitions easily into adulthood, which is rare, mm-hmm. into adult mm-hmm. films. And in a way, if you follow her career, you can follow the both the heyday and the demise of the studio system. So she's like very instructive. She's going to take us on a journey and we're actually going to do her story in two parts because this career is like, it's so important to thinking about stardom. So mm-hmm. we're going to do her early career up until Cleopatra uh, mm-hmm. in 1963, which also marks her her break with her home studio, MGM. And then mm-hmm. in, in so that's part one is her, you know, the first part of her career at MGM. Part two mm-hmm. will will begin with Cleopatra and talk about in many ways, Cleopatra is like an easy way, an easy film that marks the end of the studio system. And we'll talk about mm-hmm. the hot wonderful mess of her career including the time with richard burton going forward so this is part one yes part one and you know let's yeah so right you've given enough context that i think we can just plunge back into the beginnings because she's such an epically um successful child star and making that difficult transition it's it's amazing she's practically (laughs) born into stardom it's crazy thing um, she's born, you know, she even has a perfect star name, Elizabeth Rosamond Taylor. <laughs> you know, nobody's going to have to change that. That's perfect. Uh-huh. Um, so she's born into, you know, a, a pretty wealthy, influential family um, that's living in London. So she's got this English-American thing going because her parents are both Americans, mm-hmm. but they're living in London. Um, I think they're from Kansas, yep. someplace. They're Midwesterners, not yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not glamorous at all. Um, father's an art dealer. Mother is a former stage um, actor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, she has one brother, Howard, and they're, you know, but the, you know, it's the, it's the 30s as she's growing up. It, you're heading into war, et cetera, and that's very nervous making. And so they relocate. She's only seven. So what is it, 39? Is that right? Yeah. Yes, 39. They relocate um, to California. They wind up, you know, living in a, in a, he, you know, her father opens a a nice art gallery, starts having movie star clients, you know, in Beverly Hills and all that jazz. So they're really primed to just step in fairly easily Mm -hmm. um, into the movie industry, which I guess her mother did just as partly a way to step in to influence in American society. It's like, hell, why not? Right, right, right. And, and the first indication of she's born to be a star is people saying, oh my God, you've got to get this child you know, over to David O. Selznick, who's making Gone with the Wind, because they need a child to play the daughter of <laughs> of, of Vivian Lee and Clark Gable as Scarlett O'Hara and, and Rhett Butler. Mm-hmm. And she looks so much like Vivian Lee. She's so beautiful. She was such a staggering beauty even as a child. So striking that everyone's like, she's born to be in the movies and the perfect part. There's the perfect part for her. Yeah. And it would have been. It's one of the great, awful misses of cinema. 
I know. Because, oh, it's crushing. Because when you watch Cammy King, and Cammy King, if you're alive and listening, I'm sorry. sorry. (laughs) But you're awful. (laughs) You're a terrible child actor. You don't look anything like anyone. You have dark brown eyes. Everything about you is wrong. (laughs) I thought she was cute. (laughs) Oh, all right. She's she's fine. But she's not a great actor. She's not a great child actor. And when you think of how great Elizabeth Taylor would have been, how perfect she would have been. And, you know, the child's nickname is Bonnie for Bonnie. The Bonnie blue flag Mm -hmm. because she's supposed to have such intense blue eyes. Right. There was Elizabeth Taylor right there. I know. And I forget exactly why her mother doesn't jump on this. There's some reason. Initially, she's not interested. I forget. Oh, shit. We should have looked this up. I don't know why. I should have. I meant to and I forgot. (laughs) But anyway, there's some reason why her mother, who normally never missed an opportunity. Yeah. Was not yet into this idea. So, So the chance is missed. She doesn't get that role. But um, she does, you know, when her mother finally brings her in and, she, you know, basically shows her around, she gets two offers immediately, one from Universal, one from um, MGM, mm-hmm. and they go with Universal, which turns out to be not the right choice. And it's a kind of, you know, just temporary blip that doesn't work out at all. But for really telling reasons, she's in one tiny um, uh, film part. What's it called again? Uh, there's one. It. It's called There's One Born Every Minute. It's like it's a, right. it's a comedy. Like about right. kids. Right. But she gets dropped almost immediately. They drop her, you know, they just let her contract go almost immediately. But for really great reasons, given what her stardom is going to be like, she doesn't look like a child in any kind of normal. <laughs> her eyes especially look way too old. She doesn't have a child's eyes. So she sort of freaks people out. Right. So they just drop her. And they don't want to use her. And, and should we yeah, myth, like, should we talk about the myth of the eyes for a moment? Yes. Let's. Okay. So Let's. she was born with a condition called hypertrichosis, with a, which mm-hmm. like a, people are born with. And she, she was born covered in hair. So mm-hmm. she's like a little furry monkey. And the hair, yep. the hair fell off after a couple of days. But as part of this, she does naturally possess a double row of eyelashes. Mm-hmm. So that they, they, in part, are responsible for framing her luxurious eyes, and mm-hmm. it, she never had to wear false eyelashes at a studio mm-hmm. in, in a in an era when they were, you know, like necessary. Um, so and tragic, so many of them, yeah. so many, you know, so many people who had to wear them couldn't carry them off, and it's embarrassing. Right. <laughs> God, that's the truth. But- Oh, yeah. But, but, you know, one great thing is part of the legend from early on, and who knows if it's made up, but the stories get told of, of, of directors looking through, you know, saying, you know, t- what what have they done? To, they've over made up this child. Right. Send her back to makeup and have them take half of it away. And the little Elizabeth Taylor piping up saying, it's not makeup, Mr. Director. It's me. <laughs> <laughs> and then the double takes from cinematographers and everyone just going, what? So, yeah, she, she was just startling looking. Yes. <laughs> and But the, if people often think, I think this was a myth perpetuated by the studio that her eyes are mm. purple. They're not. They're, yeah. they're blue, but they take on many colors, uh, you know, depending mm. on what she's wearing. So just to just to put that myth to rest. <laughs> yes. The violet eyed is often the violet eyed Elizabeth Taylor, you know, it's often her description and yeah. yeah put her in certain clothes and her there are kind of an intense enough blue and a deep enough blue that they can look violet but right yeah. yeah exactly purple eyes really will add to your myth right. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway universal's loss is mgm's gain of course they go grab her uh even they of course are gonna have to you know test the water around to figure out what to do with her but they're using her her little english accent 
um, <laughs> to put her in things like, you know, Lassie Come Home and later Courage of Lassie. You know, mm-hmm. She's in Lassie Come Home with Rodney McDowell, who becomes a lifelong friend. Um, um, and they're, and they're kind of feeling around with what she's in a, some, even some little uncredited roles. They're doing that typical MGM thing where they threw, would throw people into a lot of often smaller roles just to see how, how she pans out. One of my favorites is she's uncredited in a key role as, um, Helen Burns in Jane Eyre. And if you know Jane Eyre, you know why Helen Burns is key. Yep. She's the little friend, the only friend of um young rebellious jane when she's sent off to that monstrous school mm-hmm. by her evil aunt and helen is wonderful because she is naturally good and naturally religious and what happens to people in gothic <laughs> who are naturally good and religious they are tortured and killed it's horrible right so there is absolutely gorgeous little tiny curly-headed elizabeth taylor just having to play the worst role you would think in the world which is the perfectly good naturally spiritually good child Mm -hmm. that's not a good role to play she's great (laughs) she's amazing she plays that like that's her you're just like how does that kid know how to play that without making it sickening i still don't know she's that good it's so true and this is one of her central qualities that it changes the quality remains the same but it like takes on a different resonance depending on her age so she to me she has this like very i i as you say, kind of like beatific spiritual stillness. Mm-hmm. And as a kid, it makes her uncanny, coupled yes. with that like extravagantly beautiful face. Mm-hmm. As a as a woman, it it like she has a kind of like maternal light about her. Like mm-hmm. for a for a very sexy woman, I mean she's like obviously like the roles are deeply erotic and she's, you know, very, very alluring. But um we talked about Ava Gardner in the series, these great old broad, this great old broad mm-hmm. series. And she's kind of a good note of comparison. Like Ava has like a restlessness about her mm-hmm. as a lot of like, you know, people with sex appeal do there's kind of like an mm-hmm. animal, you know, like always moving to me, mm-hmm. Elizabeth Taylor's the opposite. She's like mm-hmm. this, like, just like deep still pool. And you're, it, it, mm-hmm. it is equally mesmerizing, but there's something about her that's like, has, I don't know. It, it has, she has this like amazing aura of like acceptance or something Mm -hmm. we might be getting into the crazy but that it it, yeah so as a kid it makes her uh, perfect for these kinds of roles that would be like sickening if anyone else played that (laughs) right oh it's it's really you just you pity the poor child who has to play that kind of part and yet she it seems effortless <laughs> you know, when Jane will say, you know, oh, I hate everything. I'd cut off my arm if someone would care for me. She says all these wild things, and there's little Elizabeth you know, saying, You mustn't say that. <laughs> and she just pulls that sucker off. And by the way, if we go on and on but in in this way, which we're gonna yeah, sorry. about stars, it that's a great example of what stardom is. Great stardom that can mean like lasting mysterious fascination where people just want to watch and watch that's what stardom actually is Mm -hmm. is it's it you it naturally leads you toward the kind of mythic and the mystic because you don't really know even when it's like okay she's gorgeous well lots of people are gorgeous every gorgeous person in the country went to hollywood Mm -hmm. they can't all and believe me so many attempts to make people stars who never take off, who get one role and they get dropped. There's a million. Mm-hmm. Every girlfriend of every studio head. I mean, it's a really <laughs> evil system. So many people get thrown at the screen to see if they'll stick and they don't. Right. So when someone sticks and sticks and sticks and sticks for just decades, 
it puts you in a mode to say what is their what is their power what it, what is it um and there's there's often a kind of mysterious center that you try to analyze like what is their presence what is their quality that people would pay money and literally their name would drive people into the theater you need to ask and it was even bigger then that's one of the weirdnesses about studio stardom with the machinery behind you with all the talent of you know the filmmaking teams behind you mm-hmm. You got qualities of stardom that seemed bigger yes, <laughs> and more awesome and closer to a kind of religiosity. I think it seems quite deliberately. Oh, yes. Um, than anyone now. They're just, we, this, this, we lost certain of the qualities because, and, and no one now, I don't, I don't think people really want to feel that way anymore, but people then did. And it was even bigger in the silent era. Mm-hmm. People talked about how when you moved from silent to sound, and we'll get to that when we talk about Gloria Swanson, um, when they, a lot of people felt, well, now you've humanized the gods and goddesses, but it was so great to contemplate them as, you know, practically saint-like or, or right. <laughs> religious figures, mythic figures. That was, that was a big part of the thrill. Mm-hmm. So anyway, so that's why we go on and on and you have to go on and on or you're not interested in stars. Right. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. <laughs> but anyway, so as we go on and on to get, you know, the, the child star Elizabeth is put in a whole series as a, as a little child of a whole series. Oh, and we forgot to mention, oh, the anecdote we need to mention about the lechery built into the system. Oh, my God. You know, we're doing, you know, that we're deep into the Me Too era. There's all this, you know, exposing as there should be an outing of just the predatory nature of the entertainment business. Well, imagine when nobody was objecting how... <laughs> Oh, mm-hmm. insanely rife. This is a great story of how bad it was. There's gorgeous Elizabeth Taylor doing her little small but key role in Jane Eyre. Mm-hmm. Guess who's playing um, Mr. Rochester? <laughs> it's uh, it's it's Orson Welles. Jane. He looks at Elizabeth. <laughs> Jane. <laughs> yes, he's got he's got quite the voice, and they give him a Byronic nose, and they do all sorts of things. <laughs> Um, charismatic but at any rate he storms around (laughs) a lot but he sees little tiny tot elizabeth taylor and basically registers how gorgeous he is and basically what is it the line he says he says like call me in like it's something absurd like five years and she's 10 yeah and she's (laughs) yeah you might not even be 10 yeah she's tiny so basically call me when you're 14 or 15 yep yeah and clearly i've got my eye on you now already she's a tiny wee child so freaking disgusting but the thing about elizabeth taylor is like there are many we're going to talk about judy garland who's a real victim of the star system Mm -hmm. elizabeth taylor was she always had a backbone and she always had a sense of herself and there's a famous anecdote about louis b mayer insulting her mother and she was all of 12 years old and she said mr mayor if you ever speak to my mother like that again i will never come back i mean you just like you do not fuck with elizabeth taylor even since she was a child and Thank God, because obviously she had a, right. you know, a, a lot, a, a lot of pressure and smarminess aimed right at her. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And she looks it even as she comes into early teens, you can see it more and more on her face. Like she's just not going to take any shit. Yeah. <laughs> and it's a nice quality to see young, on in a young woman, especially as you get into the 50s, when the opposite qualities Ugh. are tending to be celebrated. It's, you know. I won't say not a great era because there's a lot of great stars who actually are in the fifties, but eh, there's a there's a real ick factor. Shall oh. we say? <laughs> She's such an antidote to the endless parade of like Doris Day and Grace yeah. Kelly and like even Marilyn, yeah, you know, like yeah. yeah. Like no disrespect. Yeah. They each have their merits, but like imagine, you know, yeah. I, I'm on I'm on the side of Liz. <laughs> so anyway. Yeah, it's just not, you know, and it's not 
it's just a bad era for in the nation. I don't know about the world, but certainly the nation for gender relationship for all sorts of historical reasons. Mm -hmm. In the 1950s, you get into this horrifying, regressive, let's return to some sort of insane, essentializing masculine versus feminine binary that's so exaggerated it now looks cartoonish i mean men were wearing suits that were padded (laughs) the shoulders were padded out to linebacker size and women had those horrible pinched waists definitely you know and giant skirts and a lot of tragic fashion at the time that are all about emphasizing that hyper masculine hyper feminine thing right right um yeah but at any rate so so how does she finally break through as a child star um you know it doesn't take very long uh, the the role of National Velvet comes along. It you know there's lots of accounts. She gives accounts of of you know how she found out about it, how much she wanted to do it, the campaign she claims to have done anyway. That literally they, she it was decided she was too short, didn't look old enough for the role, even though she was the right age. I think she was what eleven, twelve. I uh, twelve, yeah, twelve. So she's pretty much the right age but they said you're you're too short so she supposedly went on a campaign to grow extra inches uh-huh. and and she succeeded. did it <laughs> she ate like that's a star like <laughs> she ate like steak and spinach and like exercised uh-huh. really hard every day and yeah. she grew <laughs> so. yeah and she had horseback riding skills so that was partly why they they you know that was another big thing and she and she spent in the months of, of growing also you know practicing her riding skills and mm-hmm. you can see there's shots dedicated that show you. I mean, obviously, there's stunt people do the really big jumps. Mm-hmm. But you can see her riding like fury on this horse that she loved. And while they wind up giving her the horse, famously. Yes. Um, but that she's great with horses and she rides. She's great. <laughs> she's great at riding. And she's with a real natural athlete. It's easy to disparage Mickey Rooney. He's going to wind up playing. He's about her height yeah. <laughs> when she's a small 12 year old um, and he's going to wind up playing the ex jockey who winds up helping to train the horse with her. And he's a great physical actor because physically he, he had brilliance and athleticism. So she's right up against. So and he's a big scene stealer, famous for it. Mm-hmm. But boy, does she hold that movie? You know, he's great, too. There's a lot of great performances. Yeah. So anyway, she gets herself into this part through massive willpower. She said, and there's, there's going to be a number of these stories about Elizabeth Taylor of her. You would think she's so gorgeous and she's so easily identifiable as that's a natural star. That's a star. Mm-hmm. You th- but she has many accounts throughout her career of having to fight for parts for various reasons. And this is the first big fight mm-hmm. to get this character she identifies with so strong. Because she, she's, she's, yeah, she's always been an animal lover. She's known for this even before National yeah. Velvet. And, um, it, they, you know, the studio made her write a, write a book as a child <laughs> yes. called, it's a classic. Nibbles and Me. Nibbles and Me. It's about a chipmunk. <laughs> but apparently, yeah. according to school chums on the Metro lot, like uh, Janet Lee, she really did always used to bring little animals <laughs> to, to school. Mm-hmm. And she mm-hmm. grew up in a, in on Hampstead Heath, an area of London that's like wooded and it feels like the country within the city and she was always into critters and you know and including horses so but national velvet has a special place for for eileen in her <laughs> in her pantheon of films so well yeah i won't bore you with why someday I'll, maybe i'll write it but national velvet i is incredibly moving i must have seen it 30 times yeah it's all about i'll just say one phrase it's all about finding your inner greatness if you have it mm. and you might not have it. <laughs> so it's a hardcore film. Like a lot of films of this era, the forties, especially there was a kind of, maybe it was the war and having come out of the depression. There's real tough mindedness that, that even in seemingly sentimental, this is a very 
a lot of people would just say, what a sentimental family, mm-hmm. you know, story mm. with a lot of comedy in it and, you know, some drama and, uh, but essentially a feel good, but it's really got this toughness in it. And it's, a, you know, the mother in the film is the figure of greatness and she's the real head of the household, even though there's this, you know, kind of gesturing toward letting the father think he is, it's the mother. Mm-hmm. And the mother is great. She once was supposedly the first woman to swim in the, in the English Channel. And she want, herself wants to see, does her daughter Velvet, called National Velvet, um, does her daughter Velvet Brown have greatness? And does my Taylor, who's played by Mickey Rooney. So there's this kind, kind of trifecta. <laughs> and the horse. Does the horse pie have greatness? Right. So there's four <laughs> beings testing out whether they have greatness. And, well, I won't tell you, but you could guess. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and so if you, can't, if you are yourself a driven person, and who who wants to see how far you can go? There's an emotional response that can be quite intense. Mm-hmm. It's a and it was a huge success. It's not just me saying this was a. It's an exciting. The the race, the Grand National, is a terrifying race. I can't believe it's legal. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a horse killer, jockey killer of a race. Of course, it's going to wind up with Elizabeth Taylor having to be the jockey, right? Um, for the horse in this insanely dangerous race. Um, so it's just a thrilling and perfectly done film. It's a real, if you want to look at what the studio system could do, how well it could cast parts, perfectly cast, how it could get everything right. Right. In a studio film. It's a good film to look at. Yeah. And she, uh, her character is a young girl who's utterly obsessed with this horse. Yes. And, mm-hmm. and with, when with horses in general, and then this horse, she's fallen in love with a horse. Yeah. Yes. And that could see, you know, uh, that could make her seem like neurotic or whatever. But again, there's nothing about Elizabeth Taylor, even though she does play many roles that have to do with like mm-hmm. someone who's, I guess, supposed to be hysterical or neurotic. To me, mm-hmm. she never has that quality. Like she always has this like amazing um, self-possession. And so mm-hmm. her obsession over this horse, like married with her like beautiful, pure 12 year old face mm-hmm. and her sense of herself is like, all I can, I keep just comparing her to like some kind of medieval saint. Like, oh, I, and, she, and they shoot her that way deliberately. Yeah, There's shots of that are look like re- shot, paintings of saints, where she gazes upward and says, "Every night I pray to God to bring me horses." Yes, and it, and they're not, they're not kidding, and she's not kidding, and that's what's wonderful about this movie. It's like it takes very seriously the inner life of children. All across the boards, whether exceptional or not, but an exceptional child is also taken very, very seriously, and she's totally exceptional. Yes, yeah, yeah that's it, that's it. So you know, mm-hmm. it's not neurotic at, in the end. It it reads as like very pure, like an exceptional mm-hmm. purity that, like, mm-hmm. I guess I you're right. We don't really have a place for that kind of expression. We don't. In the 1940s <laughs> so. is the greatest era for children's film. The greatest era we- for allowing children to be the little freaky, crazy <laughs> half animal half god whatever the hell they are things that they are if you love children who are really children it's always disappointing to see children in film and tv they never they won't they won't show the wildness of children but you know this what's so great about elizabeth's character in this film is velvet is velvet is so filled with passion and emotion and otherness that she regularly faints she'll just be so overcome or she, she throws up they don't show that. They call it losing lunch. She loses lunch over <laughs> her emotion, her great emotion and, and love for horses. And they, they, they know how to handle that. Like, you couldn't have made that film at any other time mm-hmm. and, and honor that kind of extremity. Mm-hmm. There's a one scene where, where she's, she's fainted 
um, because she thinks she she's lost the pie who's raffled off. And she, she says to her mother, she's looking out the window and says, but I, sometimes I, I feel things so intensely that I think I see them and I think I see the whole village bringing me the pie. Right. And her mother is not looking out the window and looks at her and believes her that she's having a vision and says, if you see things that way, you're either going to be a poet or a prophet. <laughs> and she says this completely calmly. Like the mother is this unflat great actor. Anne Revere wound up blacklisted, but tremendous <laughs> actor. Mm-hmm. And she's so good as the mother, who's an extraordinary figure herself and recognizes that her kid is extraordinary and knows exactly how to handle this, which is completely calm. <laughs> right. And it's like, she's the dream mother. That's the mother everyone should get. Right. Um. So yeah, so so it's a really difficult role. It's an extreme, I can't overstress what a difficult role, again, Elizabeth Taylor has been given and just aces it. Again, seemingly effortlessly. Right. She seems to understand this character, go right into it, play all the extremes of the character, but as as Dolores points out, without ever you making you think, this kid's sick and needs a psychiatrist or something, because that's not it. She's just a super exceptional child, Mm -hmm. and that has to be honored. And it's a great movie for that. Yes. And the public agreed this, you know, this was a a huge success. And Mm -hmm. uh, interestingly, this was uh, Elizabeth Taylor very naturally um, ages gracefully into adult roles. So she does have this like sort of intermittent uh, teen time where she she's never not gorgeous like i hate her um (laughs) yes so never has an awkward age just goes right from lovely child to gorgeous teenager (laughs) i know (laughs) yeah but and you know in those films are usually you know they're pretty fluffy they it's not like her Mm -hmm. star image is exactly nailed down yet they don't you know it's a little awkward to exploit her sexuality at the age of 15 but don't worry Mm -hmm. mgm will do it um so (laughs) they they put her in a lot of like cinched dresses that show off her figure and she's you know she's usually the pretty girl that um is contrasted to like jane powell the down home one or whatever um and i I, eileen do we want to talk a little bit about one of those films or should we go on to a place in the sun well let me just sum up quickly a couple of things they're testing out they know she's gorgeous they know she can she's got insane charisma they know they can almost certainly make her a star but they're, they're, you're right. It's that age where how exploitative can you be? She's not a woman yet. Ugh. Yeah. <laughs> so they're trying out some things. And, and, and it's interesting, a couple of things they try. They try, they, they have a misfire. The film fails and it's a weird film. It's not a good film. It's called Cynthia, where they make her this frail, sickly girl. And the drama is she wants to live a full life, but her overprotective parents keep holding her back. because She's always been sickly. Mm-hmm. It's hard to make Elizabeth Taylor seem convincingly sickly for an entire movie, certainly. <laughs> she can look kind of fragile just because her face at the time is so porcelain perfect. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, she has so much vim, vim and the verve, and it just, you just don't, it's hard to believe. Yeah. So that's a misfire. It doesn't, <laughs> doesn't work, and it's not a good film anyway. Right. But they do some other things that are smart. They put her in testing her out on a couple of very established things um you know one is a is uh, we'll, we'll get to a date with judy but you know I, I just want to talk a little bit about um little women she gets put into little women oh and life with father yeah. so they're both period pieces and they're both pieces that require her to be both pretty and funny so they're testing out her ability to handle comedy mm-hmm. life with father's important because life the, the role they give her which shows that they think she's going to be a star was played by Teresa Wright, if you know who she is. She also winds up being a big star for a very brief period in the 40s. Mm-hmm. Um, she becomes a stage star playing the role that Elizabeth Taylor plays in Life with Father, and Life with Father was just unbelievably successful. I think it broke 
records and held the record for years of how long it played. It played for years hmm. on Broadway. And Teresa Wright nailed down this supporting part of the the, the kind of funny, um, but quite pretty daughter or young woman anyway, who gets who comes to the house and falls in love with the son of the house, and they have a very funny romance. This is making fun of the emotional extremes of of, of teenagers essentially, mm-hmm. but in period form. So it's it's got a lot of little laughs that you have to be able to get, or it's going to be nothing. So Elizabeth Taylor steps into the shoes of this star-making role for Teresa Wright and does great. She, I think she, it's never been much discussed that she actually has excellent comic timing. Right. And, she, and, she, and kind of similar thing happens in Little Women. Again, very trusted, very, very, you know, tested material. They've already had a hit with Katherine Hepburn's version in the 30s. They're remaking it with June Allison and the Katherine Hepburn part in MGM Color Extravaganza. And it's all young up and coming stars or, or established. So Margaret O'Brien is, is Little Beth and, you know, Janet Lee is Meg. And, you know, they've got uh, it's, it's a it's a kind of four 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 <laughs> starlet roles right and she gets the amy role which is the prettiest but also the most vain and the most selfish but in a comic soft comic way Mm -hmm. you don't think she's really going to (laughs) be a horrible person when she grows up or anything but it's all played for comedy so once again elizabeth taylor has to be beautiful and she has to be able to nail down all the comedy because her role is almost all comedy right so she's great once again and it's the weird thing that she's so overwhelmingly beautiful that it's not unusual that, that she can't get a, much credit right. and that and that she's going to have more breakthroughs of being considered a real actor now than any other actor. I think. And it's always going to be with surprise. It's always going to be like, wow, she can act exactly <laughs> over and over. This is going to happen. But it was pretty clear from early on that she could act. But yeah, she wasn't getting a lot of credit. Right, and then, so early they're being smart in those roles. But carry on. Although this related to the constant surprise that she can act over like a decade's mm. worth of films. Um, mm-hmm. There's the line that Elizabeth herself always used to say. She always used to say, "I am a completely instinctual oh. actress," and she's like, "I yeah. never had a lesson." And it's like you uh-huh. grew up at Metro Goldwyn Mayer. Yeah. I, I think uh-huh. like you probably had an acting lesson or two. But yeah, in fact, they all did. Yeah. They were all being coached with it. And I forget that. In fact, they had a. St- I'm forgetting the name of the one. Who did they have? There was like Ginger Rogers' mother was one. Lila Rogers, uh, Maria Uspenskaya was one. Yeah, but there were different studios, and Lillian Burns was one. I forget which one was at MGM. I think Lillian Burns. But each studio. I believe it's Lillian, I think Burns. It was Lillian Burns. Yeah. Yes. Had had a, an overseeing acting coach that worked so with all the stars. But they, at least according to certain histories. They supposedly suppressed the knowledge of that, that they were they were using acting coaches. They want they were trying to sell the idea that the studio was in the business of simply finding personalities who <laughs> that they alone could recognize. <laughs> they had the expertise to be able to see someone go, God. that person might work. Um, but we just need to develop their own natural personality. And of course, we'll teach them to walk and we'll put the right makeup on them and the right hair Ugh. and dress them right. But they themselves suppressed, uh, you know, in fan magazines, et cetera, the idea that the, these people were being tra- trained as actors. Right. I don't know why. It makes no sense to me. They're getting trained in every other way. Yeah. But it was part of the studio system justifying its existence as we just have this magic ability to look at, you know, thousands of people trying to be stars and go, you. Yeah. <laughs> yes. You have it. And we will just need to pull it out further. That's all. It- 
And so, yeah, it seems like, yeah, she learned to parrot the party line on that one. It, it sounds like it. It's, it's, <laughs> it's some pretty good self-mythologizing, too. It's rela- I think, you know, it's related theoretically. A number of people have commented on this. Um, Jane Foyer, Thomas Elsesser. There's a way that especially Hollywood and in the American context, this industrialized mass art, meaning the movies, uh, mm-hmm. no, you know, MGM and other studios like it were known as factories for a reason. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> they were constantly positing themselves as folk art. So it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's the whole myth of, for, say, an MGM musical, even though an MGM musical requires the utmost technical efficiency and probably mm-hmm. the most personnel to produce out of any other type of film. Um, Mm -hmm. the myth that they sell the audience, when you watch it, you feel like you can do it too. You know, spontaneously, you too will pick up a garbage can and dress (laughs) yourself in curtains and you can do the very same number that, you know, Gene Kelly and Donald O'Connor just pulled off. So... You know, it's it's kind of a similar thing. It's like I we can talk about this on another episode, but it seems like mm-hmm. particularly American to be obsessed mm-hmm. with like a demand for the impression of authenticity. Uh-huh. It's like we're right. so anti-training. This is not really true in other countries or other art forms. You know, you wouldn't mm-hmm. go to like an opera and be like, oh, you know, they just plucked her from the <laughs> Just piazza. put her on shelter on stage. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, it's yeah. okay that you're trained, you know? But anyway. Yeah. Well, and especially because, you know, they, they liked to shove to the fore the like the, you know, young starlets walking with books on their heads and stuff. Right. There was some kinds of training they didn't mind. I think it was the idea of where we will, we have to polish the, the, the rough gem, you know, I guess, I assume, I guess that's the logic. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. They, they, po- anyway. they polished this gem. It went they well. Certainly polished this gem. <laughs> so. <laughs> so, so, but, but, you know, so, so they do these tester roles, which are, you know, she's still always beautiful, but they're not quite ready to spring the sexuality. Mm-hmm which they're sort of holding back and all the corsets in those period things probably helped a lot you know? right, she, right. and you know, the high neck dresses and all the rest, but it's getting to the point that they're going to have to confront. I mean, Elizabeth Taylor grows into a figure that's just eye popping <laughs> yeah. and you can tell it's really her. This is no fake. No, no. She had the hourglass figure of all time from the age of, I don't know, 15. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. And so they're going to have to deal with it. So where they start to me anyway, I put the mark at, at a date with Judy. Mm hmm. And it's just disturbing. I don't know if they really, if she's just suddenly grew a little more into it and they didn't realize, or it's a disturbing movie to watch. She, she just is so incredible looking and such a woman, mm-hmm. even though she's only 15 or 16, 16 and there's, she, she's 16 and there's Jane Powell with her as the other, the, actually the lead in the film and who looks, you know, like the typical, I don't know, 50s, good, wholesome, you know, blonde starlet mm-hmm. who has is almost desexualized. Well, she, yeah, there's very little sexuality. Mm-hmm. It's all about being wholesome and yeah. <laughs> fluffy dresses and singing in a soprano voice. And and her rival in love, and she, of course, is daunted by Elizabeth Taylor as her rival in love. Anyone <laughs> would be. And the, the rivals for Robert's, young Robert Stack, who's being extremely handsome, being built up as a star himself. Mm-hmm. But but Elizabeth Taylor looks, you know, 16 going on 30. <laughs> and there's these dresses that just cling to her. And you're just staring going, this, there's at a level that I feel like I shouldn't be watching this. It has a kind of odd, porny quality. And it just seems to stop every scene mm-hmm. where she gets up and walks across the room. And you can just feel everyone go, God. <laughs> yeah. Talk about the yeah, male gaze. <laughs> oh, man. It is a weird, weird film. Yeah. Weird. And, and so now it's uncontainable and they're going to have to do something. 
Yes. <laughs> you know, to unleash unleash this thing. It, but they, they, there's a couple of hesitation rolls while they figure it out. Well, and I, I mean, we, we don't have to linger. There is like a date with Judy. And then there's there's like another Jane Powell. Father of the Bride is the biggie. Well, that launches her, I think, into Ladydom, right? Oh, Julia, into Mis- Julia Misbehaves. Did you ever see that one with Oh, Peter no, I Lawford? haven't. I need to see that. Yeah. It look, you know, it looks just like a, a date with Judy, but it. Right. Uh, it, <laughs> it's um, I, I think part of, you know, her sort of like bursting at the seam sexuality, I think to me is the key to her Mm -hmm. fame. Obviously that sounds really dumb and obvious, but I mean, it's related Mm -hmm. to what you said about the fifties. Like the fifties are saturated with sex and an obsession with sex and gender, like no other decade. It is both Mm -hmm. very retrograde in wanting to like reassert that women are women and men are men. We've gone through the Mm -hmm. war. We don't want to mess around with all of that weird twenties and thirties gender ambiguity. We're going to like settle Mm -hmm. down and get back to normal living um and you know elizabeth taylor embodies all the contradictions inherent in this so Mm. her you know obviously she's and she was raised in her personal life her family life to be she was a good girl you know she was a a virgin on her wedding day she was closely looked after by her family and obviously Mm -hmm. by the studio um but the the contradiction is her face and her figure which like you know exudes sex and then, you know, she's going to embody the contradictions also in her personal story. Like, as you mm-hmm. all probably know, if you know who Elizabeth Taylor is, you know that she's been married eight times to seven different <laughs> men. Right. So there's a kind of like insane investment in the idea of marriage. Mm-hmm. And which is very 50s in a sense, mm-hmm. um, but also her failure at it, is, mm-hmm. or I don't know if you'd call it failure, con- you know, continued repeated success uh, for a limited <laughs> amount of time. Um, but, yeah. you know, it, lots of success there. Yeah. <laughs> it, it also betrays, shall we say, some of the potential problems with monogamy and, mm-hmm. and whatever. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, she's she. I think embodies so many contradictions of mm-hmm. like being a woman uh, in in the fifties. Like she's very successful at be, mm-hmm. at the the fifties idea of what a woman should be, and she, uh, you know, also her the contradictions inherent in her expose the contradictions in sort of fifties sex ideology. Mm-hmm. So I I mean probably the. The yeah, like as you say, um, father of the bride is when we get to see her grow up, and the studio does it in tandem. It releases this film, a comedy with yeah. Spencer Tracy as her dad. You all saw the remake in the '90s with Steve mm-hmm. Martin. Um, mm-hmm. Elizabeth Taylor's wedding is staged in con- her real life wedding to Nikki Hilton, who's the heir to the Hilton fortune and Paris Hilton's grandfather. Um, is is like a staged in conjunction with the opening of this film so she's a bride in the film she's a bride in real life and how does that go i mean not well in reality <laughs> really well on film yeah <laughs> it's, it's too often the case right yeah N- nikki hilton she of course doesn't really know him she's so young he's super young but he's an alcoholic abuser yep sounds familiar because it happens so often um and it lasts i don't know eight months nine months not long at all right um yeah yeah um, but yes, the publicity, you can just imagine what a storm, what an absolute gift to the studio to be able to play up, you know, these kind of uh, two lavish weddings. The whole comedy of Father of the Bride, of course, is built around this wedding that is uncontainable. There's every attempt by the by the father to keep it inexpensive and small. And of course, it goes, it's the 50s. So it goes completely out of control because <laughs> it's huge. 
ridiculous thing. And at the center of the wedding is, of course, the bride, Elizabeth Taylor. And again, her overwhelming qualities. She's being married. You know, she's marrying this this very ordinary guy because <laughs> she's so beautiful that, it, again, the distraction of that, even in very casual clothes, even, you know, nothing, nothing is played up to make her very, very sexy. She's mm-hmm. just playing the, the nice daughter of the house is about to get married. Mm-hmm. Um, but nevertheless, the face is so overwhelming alone mm-hmm. that it, it all it just has scenes that are staggering. The only scene that's allowed where you're allowed to be staggered, where it's built so you'll be staggered is when Spencer Tracy goes in to call her and says the car's here and he sees her in her wedding gown. Yeah. And it can't, is just goggling in your mind. And of course the design of the gown and everything else, you know, it's a typical studio showcase. Mm-hmm. Um, but she, she again is meant to be showcased at that, at that age, her looks are so overwhelming that she's always blasting the reality open. So the idea that she's going to marry that guy, you can really feel, they play it for comedy because the father's appalled. <laughs> He just thinks she's his, his daughter, his beloved daughter. and she, no, no one could be good enough for you, but you're looking and you get a, a comical montage of all of her young man suitors. And they're all like, really? Right, right. <laughs> but you, it's the 50s. You have to accept that marriage is the ultimate. And so you, you go along with it. And, it, you know, it's a comedy. It's light. It's warm. It's very, very well done. And it's directed by Vincent Minnelli, mm-hmm. who is perfect at imbuing such light material with a kind of strange depth. It's his great gift. He does it in musicals as well. He can bring a kind of shadow region <laughs> to it. He does it brilliantly in the fears of the wedding that gives Spencer Tracy a huge nightmare mm-hmm. where it's literally shot film noir style and it's as a horror film. <laughs> so that so that he's falling through the floor and his tuxedo he's trying to walk down the aisle and his tuxedo is shredding and Elizabeth Taylor clutches her face and shrieks and it's it's this nightmare he wakes up and then he gets a great scene with Elizabeth Taylor where you're seeing if she's an untrained natural actor, she's sure a good one because she's there in a very warm night before you know, wedding jitters scene with Spencer Tracy in the kitchen where she confesses she's terrified, <laughs> not of being married, just of the wedding. Right, right. <laughs> just because everyone's looking at you and it has to be perfect. And he, of course, pretends he's not scared and, and says, and we're just going to sail through this. He'll be with me and blah, blah, blah. But it's, you know, it's and it's all played comically, but she's right there with the guy who is considered the master actor, perhaps of Hollywood, perhaps of anywhere. And she's just able to get into scenes like this and with a kind of sure emotional rightness, she's really great at that. Later, Montgomery Clift is going to pay tribute to that mm-hmm. and say, you know, she might not have stage training. She might not have a lot of technique, but she just has the greatest emotional instinct. Mm-hmm. She can find her way into scenes just that way and be marvelous. And we're going to talk about that in, in a bit with a cru- the, you know, a, the crucial role, A Place in the Sun, which is really bringing her into adulthood in a much more serious way. Yeah. So Father of the Bride might, it's like a, uh, it's a transition point. It's like, it's got one yeah. foot in the earlier MGM innocent roles, mm-hmm. that, you know, her sort of like looks notwithstanding. And then it's got another foot in thinking of Elizabeth Taylor as married and marriageable and sort of, on, you know, in the world of men. And right. she, so she does divorce Nikki Hilton, who not only beat, he threw her down the stairs and she lost a, a baby. She was pregnant. Oh, I did not know. Oh, that. yeah, it was wow. it was horrific. But you know, um, she did. I mean, to her credit, she did not stick around. Um, mm-hmm. And she, so then, probably her next important film. I mean, there, she makes a, a sequel to Father of the Bride, Father's Little right. Dividend, which is successful as well. But the very mm-hmm. significant film uh, is A Place in the Sun in 1951. Mm-hmm. So she mm-hmm. is 19. 
when she makes this mm-hmm. movie. Uh, newly divorced. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, oh, actually, wait. I think she made the movie in 1949, but it wasn't released until 51. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, so she's okay. she's a little bit younger. Um, mm. But anyway, this is what it's a very important film for her because she's she plays a femme fatale for the first time. Although it's a kind of it's not a straightforward femme fatale. She doesn't no. she doesn't know how enticing she is. Um, mm-hmm. But she plays the very uh, the very rich daughter of mm-hmm. um, a, an industry tycoon, and uh, she falls in love with. Um, a poor relation by marriage mm-hmm. of the family, this young boy mm-hmm. who works at her father's factory. And it's based on an American tragedy. Um, the, the by Theodore Dreiser, the Dreiser yeah. novel. Yeah. And she, you know, in so many ways, she represents the allure of the American dream that is not going to pan out for this young man. Mm-hmm. And they, and they encapsulate all this in that very, when, when, when studio system films were working, they were awe-inspiring in how much they could get established in a minute. So the opening of the film is perfect. There you have the poor, the poor relation hitchhiking to town where he's hoping to meet with his wealthy uncle and, and get a job and get some start in life. Mm-hmm. And he's, so he's so poor, he's hitchhiking, and he looks up and there's a big billboard of his uncle's company's uh, bathing suits, and it's a beautiful model wearing a bathing suit. And you right away see his kind of longing for the whole good life that is being represented. What's clearly being indicated there is with most, most advertising is what you get. If you can succeed in a capitalist system is not just the material gains, but the satisfaction of your erotic desires. Right. And if, and you're not, you're either going to get it all or you're going to get nothing. <laughs> and that's kind of how it pans out. Um, so he, he looks up longingly at this billboard for these swimsuits. The family's called Eastman, Eastman swimsuits. Uh-huh. And Elizabeth Taylor drives by in a convertible, of course, not glancing at him. And so you get it all together in one place. Right. He already sees where he's placed and where he wants to go. And it's all about, and it's going to be about this erotic quest. And she goes by and cements it. And it's, yeah, a way of playing that she doesn't know her own status in life or her own how desirable she is on multiple levels that she just drives by without of course not seeing him mm-hmm. and then when she first meets him she doesn't even notice him right she's busy talking parties and everything to everyone and he's staring like holes into her because she so represents everything that was in that billboard and more mm-hmm. um and she doesn't even notice so it's like her her not having any idea of the impact she's got. Right. And she she does not, in this film and in other films, she seldom plays an evil character. You know, she's not mm-hmm. a two-dimensional femme fatale, like in a straightforward noir way by any means. But there is a sense that to engage with Elizabeth Taylor in a love relation will, <laughs> will not end well for you if you're a man. It usually does right. not. And this, you know, this film is very representative of that, that the sort of like short conflict is that Montgomery Clift, who I think this is his, is this his breakthrough film, Eileen? Or was it like Red River or something before this? I think it's before. Okay. Yeah, because Red River is 49. Okay. Yeah, when it comes out, yeah. But he's still, you know, he's a young, he's hot. still fairly new, but he's a hot, yeah, he's the hot young actor or one of them. Yeah, yeah. and you know, a serious method actor versus her mm-hmm. studio princess. And, yeah. yeah, and mm-hmm. they, they become fast friends. And Montgomery Clift is. Well, it's more than that. Yeah, soulmates, really. I mean. A soulmate. I mean, initially, it's like they're in love. It's she's the only woman that he ever supposedly contemplates marrying. Right. Even though that would have been disastrous. He's gay, 
but he loves her so much and he understands her so well. And she's wildly in love with him. Yep. But yeah, it winds up being, of course, finally she has to accept it. And she's fairly wise in the way she finally accepts it. And it's just like, whatever for you, Monty. And that goes on for the rest of his, as long as he lives. She's incredibly loyal to him. Yes. For, forever. And this is a quality of her. She's a, a fiercely loyal friend, which will come into her A's activism later. But, yeah. but you know, obviously uh, many gay men were an important part of her her life. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Montgomery's Cliff relation, Montgomery Cliff's relationship with her like transcends, I think, any yeah. kind of category or description. Uh, yeah. Is, there's a great qu- quote from her great love, Richard Burton. And she said, basically, you know, Elizabeth likes me, but she loves Monty. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty extreme. <laughs> She married Burton twice, by the way. Twice. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> all right, right, right. So, you know, she talks later about how, you know, it's, it's, and it's sort of some self-knowledge, at least looking back. She says, I was so well taken care of, you know, I was w- with Montgomery Clift, who's helping her mm-hmm. with her performance. I'm with George Stevens, who's concentrating a tremendous amount of attention on her to make sure, she, again, she, she rises to the occasion. Because it's a tough role. Her last scene is she's going to have to visit him on death row. Yep. Because, of course, he, if you know, you should know, if you don't, American Tragedy, which is based on an actual case, it's a young man who kills his pregnant girlfriend, probably. They, they introduce a shadow of a doubt, but, you know, mm-hmm. pretty much, yeah. Mm-hmm. So he can have this other woman who's the ultimate in desirability. Mm-hmm. Um, so at any way, she, she's talked about how it was just the, such a great experience. It was so exciting creatively. Mm-hmm. She was so engaged with the role. She was, of course, in love with Montgomery Clift. She's got Stevens. You know, so help- she's just like, she said, in a way, I spent the rest of my life trying to recover that sense of excitement. And well, you know how that's going to go. Right. So it was a way of illustrating the insanely, what, emotional roller coaster of her life, where she's in this constant quest to have as an intense an experience as she experienced them. Yes. And it, it the film itself, I mean, it's it comes out you know, on the, uh, you know, in the print. Um, I, my opinion is that Elizabeth Taylor is someone who does well with a strong director. Mm-hmm. You know, some actors are fabulous no matter what you do with them. She's not one of them, I don't think. <laughs> oh, I agree. Yeah. yeah she's definitely strong and weaker and weak performance. Yes. Yeah. And A Place in the Sun is so strong because of the sure hand of George Stevens, you know, mm-hmm. I think. And there, there's so many luminous moments with them. The Probably the most famous is there's mm. a series of close-ups where they're, Oh my god. Oh my god. They're, 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 they're so swoony. Oh, oh my god. And, and there's a score by Franz Waxman, who also mm. he he wrote a lot for Hitchcock. He also did the music for Sunset Boulevard. It is one of the mm. most beautiful, romantic, yeah, just like swooning, swelling scores. And it mm-hmm. plays during this scene. And this is mm-hmm. when they're confessing their love for each other. And there's, you know, there's a sense of danger about it too, because because mm-hmm. of the class difference and whatever. Yeah. And uh, she's excited and, you know, she's telling him, you'll, you'll come to the lake this summer. You know, you'll come hang out with me. You'll stay with my parents and we'll work it out somehow. Yes. And, and, you know, he's, (laughs) you're, you, the audit, you, the spectator, just like drown in her face. Like he's Mm going to be just like overwhelmed by this woman and like, you know, completely ruin his life um, for it. Yeah. This is the scene where it basically is the death knell of the other working class young woman played by Shelley Winters that he's already sexually involved with and he's already gotten pregnant. Yes. Is he's not going to be able to give that's it's what the scene is for show that it's, it's such the erotic peak of his life. 
And yes. everything peak. It goes, it's everything. It's everything in existence that you could hope for is happening. Exactly. And she says, she has a wonderful erotic line. He says, I wish I could tell you. I wish I could tell you all, meaning the, what the horrible entanglement he's in and how is he going to get out of it? And, and she's like, tell mama. Tell mama all. Whoa. And it's just <laughs> like, holy shit. <laughs> it's super charged. It's so charged and so beautiful. And it still, it just works like. Yeah. <laughs> like no love, no, no love scene has ever worked. Oh yeah. It's, it's Wagnerian. You're like, yes, I will yeah. like resolve this chord. I will die now. It is like, it yeah. is complete. Um, yeah. <laughs> so. And as I often say, it almost, almost overbalances the meaning of the whole film. Yes. Because. Because now you're just like, well, of course he has to kill Sean. Right. The, the social critique is nearly lost. And it's not a dumb yes. film. Like, it, did, you know, it knows no. that, that it's supposed to be a social critique. But you're so mm. right. Her casting, like, throws uh, it off balance. You're like, oh, but it's worth it, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Totally. <laughs> There's no hope. It's not even a choice now. He's got to. Yeah. 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 And, you know, it doesn't help that Shelley Winters and Montgomery Cliff was very smart. Yeah, he was the only one who saw it. He 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 said she's playing her tragedy immediately before she's a tragedy. She's playing a tragic girl. She's supposed to be a bright, lively, pretty girl. That's a perfectly reasonable choice for him. Ah, uh, yes, that's how it's written in the book. She's even described as being very pretty. Oh, and very bright. I did not know yeah. that. Oh yeah, no one knows it because they see Shelley Winters and think, well, there's a working class. Girl what a drip! You, but better than nothing. <laughs> yeah. And according to Montgomery Clift, it's like we, this is all wrong. This is, and no one would listen. And and I even read this from some comment. I forget who it was, who was in a book talking about how well, of course, Montgomery Clift turned out to be wrong, and Shelley Winters went on to win the award. And I'm like, no, he's totally right. What is that like to be totally the only one right? And no one right. Right, yeah, right. Absolutely right. Oh, that's a so yeah. So it, that even adds more weight to the. God, he can't possibly. So anyway, it's that, but it's a lot of it is the power of Elizabeth Taylor. Oh yeah, and, I mean you're yeah. you're cheering yeah. for him as the spectator to to murder his pregnant girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a terrifying, an awful thing. Yeah, and we should also add, you know, the brother and sister thing between Montgomery Clift and Elizabeth Taylor is in part because they kind of look alike. Mm -hmm. They both have. Um, dramatically gorgeous eyes. He had you know, green crystal eyes. She has, you know, her supposedly violet, <laughs> um, insane eyes. They both have very, you know, heavy brows that are very distinctive. They have very beautiful fronts of their face. So later on, you know, a big part of uh, Montgomery Cliff's tragedy is, of course, he's gonna his face is gonna be destroyed in a car wreck, and he's not going to be her twin anymore. Right. But in that movie, when he is her, he's so completely the 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 male version of Elizabeth Taylor, that that's another driving force that makes you feel like they must be together. Right. It, it's very true. They're these gorgeous Gemini twins. Yeah, and, they are. Yeah. So, okay, yeah. we're only, we're only, she's only like 19 or 20. We've been going on for like an hour. This is why we need we two have. parts. Well, you're <laughs> so right. You are so right. We are going on and on. So let's, all right, we're going to get through the 50s with you right now. Okay. And, and what I, I'm a fan of, there's kind of like a middle period of undistinguished melodramas. Now mm -hmm. at least she's playing the sexy lead. And I, mm -hmm. I like this weird group of films. Um, there are movies like The Last Time I Saw, I saw Paris. 1954 mm -hmm. based on mm -hmm. F. Scott Fitzgerald 
Um, Mm -hmm. and she's, she's, you know, she plays like the Zelda character, although it's set, I think it might technically be set in the twenties or thirties, but you know how the fifties are. She's still dressed like the fifties. Everything looks like the fifties. Yeah. 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 And she's so beautiful. Like I want this She's the only thing you care about in the whole movie. You just watch her. It's a drip of a Van Johnson is, yeah. Van Johnson is supposed to be F. Scott Gerald. If you know who he is, you already know. Like That's real silly. (laughs) That's not good. That's real silly. But, but Liz is so, I mean, she's wearing like these fabulous black turtlenecks and like like black pencil mm-hmm. skirts and um, a, an amazing houndstooth coat that I still think about all the time. Um, <laughs> I, I yeah. mean, she's, it's like, it's such a pleasure to watch her and you're never, anytime she's on screen, you're just happy. You know, you're just like grateful. Mm-hmm. She makes a, a film that it's not a distinguished motion picture, but it's, it's an MGM thing called Rhapsody. And uh, mm-hmm. Vittorio Gassman is her leading man. And she, she's just like some beautiful woman somewhere. And she's, um, these two music students, classical musicians, are vying for her love. And she's just Mm in one opulent, gorgeous MGM velvet concoction (laughs) after another. Oh, my God. I think uh, it's like top 10 most like fabulous feast for the eyes. She wears like a lot of like, you know, velvet strapless things. Her hair is very short. It's it's like almost um, Mm -hmm. a boy cut almost. You know, it's that Mm -hmm. 50s thing. But she, which is usually death. It's usually the most asexual haircut. She's uh-huh. she looks amazing. She looks so beautiful. Uh-huh. Um she's she stars in Ivanhoe opposite Robert Taylor in oh, 1952. Yeah. Yeah. She plays Re- save you Ivanhoe. Yes. <laughs> she's Rebecca the Jewess, yeah. obviously, because she's brunette. Yeah. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> <laughs> Who's playing the lead again? Joan Fontaine. Somebody really powerful. Yes, yeah, it's, it's Joan her. Fontaine. Right. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. And and you know, so she's always she's she will frequently be set up as the uh, the brunette that you you know who's dangerous and you might have to die for. But she's mm-hmm. usually also there's usually an element of sympathy for her character mm-hmm. as well. Right. Um. And then oh, in- intriguingly, back to our Gone with the Wind anecdote. So. Mm-hmm. Elizabeth Taylor is about 20 years younger than Vivian Lee, but mm-hmm. in 1954, Vivian Lee had a, a mental breakdown filming a movie called Elephant Walk, co-starring mm-hmm. Peter Finch and Dana and Andrews. It was set in Ceylon, and mm-hmm. um, they got Elizabeth Taylor to just fill in and play her part. Mm-hmm. So once again, she could just be like substituted for Vivian. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah. What's your great line about her? She she would look. She'd be exactly like Vivian Lee if Vivian Lee had ever had taken naps and eaten Doritos. That was <laughs> I did say that, didn't I? Yes. Such a good line. <laughs> it's so true. Thanks for reminding me. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Again, like Vivian has a very like nervous, you know, edgy quality, mm-hmm. and Liz is the opposite. Mm-hmm. You know, Liz is like well fed and, and generally content. <laughs> so a lot of steak. Yeah, a lot of steak. This girl. Um, there's this amazing photo from the MGM commissary from about this era like 54 55 and it's like okay who is it it's Grace Kelly Grace Kelly Uh, someone drippy um Anne Blythe fucking Anne Blythe oh god maybe it's Janet Lee it's someone else like that yeah Uh, bless their hearts they're all blonde at this moment yeah they're very blonde and and prim and they're drinking like sipping tea from teacup I think Grace Kelly's sipping tea from a teacup or something and they all are wearing high neck things and she's sitting in the back table and you're the that's the only one it's with the guys yep she's sitting with men and just looking like (laughs) 
She everyone else is all the blondes are smiling at the camera, eating a salad. Liz is back there. I'm like, I know that bitch is eating a steak. She's she's got she's wearing red. Her face shows up, even though she's not the focus of the photo. You could see her face from a mile away. And she's got, you know, she's got this like fabulous, almost disgusted look and kind of kind of slouched over what I know is meat and potatoes, you know, and you're just like, I love you. You're like, how how could people not cling to you during the 1950s? You're such a breath of fresh air. But anyway, yeah, yeah, that was great. I loved that. <laughs> so, all right. Um, are we on to like giant? Let's do, it's giant time. Let's go there. Okay. So giant is another of the roles that supposedly, I don't know if we can believe it, but apparently Elizabeth Taylor claimed she campaigned for. She claimed that Grace Kelly was who they wanted huh. for the part. And then there was even a second person they wanted before her. And she had to kind of fight. It's so hard for me to understand how Elizabeth Taylor could have been fight, in her prime, could have been fighting for parts. I know. She, apparently she said this. And maybe they thought she couldn't do the aging thing. Who knows what it would mm-hmm. be. But, you know, in fact, what's striking about Giant, she has to play a young woman from, I think it's Virginia, yep. who winds up marrying a Texas um, cattle baron named Bix Benedict, played by Rock Hudson. And, you know, having to do a certain amount of culture shock, having to go out to Texas, where everything is about Texas and how big and how great Texas is. And, of course, he's appalled by which is a little weird, just coming from Virginia, but she's appalled by the race, the anti-Mexican racism mm-hmm. and the class, you know, super exaggerated class difference represented by the character of James Dean, who's like an impoverished, you know, guy, but aspiring, you know, kind of um, roughneck who's, who wants everything Big Benedict's got, including her. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, she, she, but she, the, the challenge of the role, the biggest challenge is she has to age from, you know, 20 or whatever to in her 50s and a, and a grandmother mm-hmm. and you know that they don't do that gracefully in those old films you know they just paint a little bit of <laughs> you know, bluish white in people's hair and call it a day yep. basically <laughs> but so you have to act it you're gonna have to act age and she does a, a fabulous job a part of that maternal thing mm-hmm. i think that she has even in tell mama tell mama all she can just spin it she can spin it erotic yes she can spin it the other way and she spins it the other way and she has the most wonderful way of speaking when she's older that is exactly a motherly voice yes it's it's perfect (laughs) where she'll just say things that are kind of you know, kind of calm, kind of seen it all, kind of wise. <laughs> and it's like, where did you get this? You're 20 what? <laughs> it's really a remarkable thing. She's so she's always she always has this quality of being older than her years. And she yeah. it it also translates to she has uh, at least one really amazing extended scene with James Dean, who's who's a character yes. in the film. And he's mm-hmm. a he starts out as just like a ranch hand and mm-hmm. then he become he becomes an oil baron on his own. Although he strikes oil. He strikes oil. Yeah. And he's you know he, he's in love with her throughout the film even though she's Rock mm-hmm. Hudson's wife. And mm-hmm. um she just has this amazing you know she's in this scene in a way she's handling him she wants you know she wants to sort of not in a not again not in an evil manipulative way but she's got an agenda in speaking with him and there's a way where she's she's like she's speaking to him as if she is a mother you know yes and she's so good and so in control so you're talking about the one where she's in his shack yeah exactly that one and she's all and he's he's so manifestly in love with her he literally has her wedding picture from pulled from the papers tacked up on his shack wall yep 
you know, so she clearly knows, but she's putting, she, you're right. She's putting, she's recategorizing their relationship firmly. Yes. <laughs> you know, and she's all, she's very, quite sympathetic, but in this reserved way, that's like, oh, she's, yes, well, she's, she represents like, it's really good for you. We're glad, you know, that you're coming on. She seems to be complimenting him. He, he, he makes her tea. Yes. He does all this stuff to try to court her in an absurd way. Right. Yeah. It's, and it's such a multi-layered scene and she's only 24 years old in this film yeah. and she's like just so, like so masterful and again self-possessed um mm-hmm. we should say this film giant was filmed in part in marfa texas and mm-hmm. if you know marfa marfa today is uh kind of like a hipster it's kind of like santa fe on steroids it's like you know you oh, wow. you go there for like really fancy art and there's hardly mm-hmm. anything there it's you know like um probably like a gas station but also like you know a dolce and gabbana store or you know like they've got <laughs> right. like a handful of like super fancy designer shit a bunch of uh-huh. and there's like a really crazy contemporary art scene um mm-hmm. and it's because uh, Rock Hudson, Elizabeth Taylor, and James Dean went out to film this movie there, and, and it was nothing. I mean, it is it is nowhere. <laughs> it's still nowhere. Um, but they made it because the press came to cover their presence. They made it kind of a national destination, and this like hipster mm. universe uh, sprung up around it. This will happen a second mm. time because Elizabeth mm. Taylor goes to film something um, in the second in Elizabeth Taylor part two, where she accompanies mm-hmm. Richard Burton to film night of the iguana in Puerto Vallarta in Mexico. Mm-hmm. Burton and Taylor made Puerto Vallarta, but anyway, that's just a little, it's just a little tidbit. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, so, but it's nice to note like recurrent qualities of her life, you know, and, and another, that's one and another, because you know, again, at a certain point, the press is going to be so all over her and it's going to be partly her love life a big part <laughs> right. of her just increasingly amazing and scandalous and ever active love life. That's <laughs> incredible. Um, but also just, she's, she gets to be such a big star that she's that kind of big star that everything they do is, is, is nude. Right. But another part of the, of the filming of giant is of course, she's great friends with both rock Hudson and James Stewart. I mean, Jim, <laughs> James Dean mm-hmm. who don't like each other at all. Mm-hmm. Hate each other. Um, and, but somehow she splits the difference between them and is friends with both. And and then very tragically, a few days after filming ends, James Dean is killed in his famous car crash. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's a kind of way that tragedy seems to stalk Elizabeth Taylor's life, either through her own, she's going to wind up with massive numbers of health woes to the point that's also a part of the saga. Right. The ever dramatic saga is her illnesses, her accidents, her this or that. Um, starting, that starts all the way from National Velvet, where she breaks her back, you know, during the filming, but people don't know it Mm -hmm. and they only found out later because she just has back problems the rest of her life um but you know people people her friends is tragedies um her own tragedies are gonna make a real soap opera of her life and she literally apparently had to go back and and still film her responses to james dean in certain scenes after he'd been killed Mm -hmm. and we're gonna see that happens multiple times where she has to do a turnaround recovery and go back into a really painful filming situation mm-hmm. right after someone's died. Right. Right. And this, the, uh, so another tragedy around this time was mm-hmm. Montgomery cliffs accident. So right. uh, which occurred at, is that before or after? I can't remember after, uh, slightly after it is 1956 yeah. though, I believe. Um, 
So, I mean, like right around the same time. Around the same time, because Rock Hudson's at that party. Of course, he becomes a big friend. But yeah, um, yeah they're having it's a party at her house. It's up in the hills. Yeah. It, and yeah. And and Montgomery Clift, um, it, you know, is drunk and driving home and um, has a big car crash. And among mm-hmm. the things that happen are his face got it. He, he hit his head really badly and he bit through his own tongue and his head yeah. blew up to the size of a basketball. Elizabeth Taylor arrived on the scene before anyone, before the ambulance, pulled oh. his teeth out of his tongue, which allowed yeah. him to live, allowed him to breathe. And then mm-hmm. amazingly, the press actually got there before the ambulance. And she said, mm-hmm. I swear to God, if you take a single photo, none of you will ever work in this town again. And she single-handedly mm-hmm. fought them off. No one got photos of him. And mm-hmm. I mean, she's just a fierce, fierce friend. And then thereafter, she made sure that he got work. She would yeah, say- because he was uninsurable because he became, he was already terribly alcoholic. He also becomes a drug addict, mm-hmm. you know, addicted to painkillers and God knows what all. Mm-hmm. And his face has just been rearranged and there's only so much putting together they can do. And the trauma of that traumatizes him for life. But yeah, she's literally the one who puts, who just says, nope, it's Montgomery Clift in this movie or we ain't making the movie. Yeah. Repeatedly. Repeatedly. Yeah. Until he dies. She gets him a yeah. job in Raintree County, which is this horrible, like, kind it's of- really so bad. Oh. <laughs> oh. You know, gone with the wind, Civil War yeah. thing. Ugh. And again, she's trying, like, she's supposed to play, like, some Southern Belle who goes crazy and does not pull yeah. it off because she's not crazy. Nothing about her is crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then she gets him a job in Tennessee Williams suddenly last summer. So throughout mm-hmm. the late 50s, she makes sure that he works. Mm-hmm. And um, should we go through the husbands? Let's do the husbands. We've <laughs> neglected the husbands because there have been a couple, haven't there? Michael Wilding, the actor, British actor, who's very successful in Great Britain and a very respected actor, but boy, what happens to him? Shit, it's terrible. Yeah. <laughs> Once he marries Elizabeth Taylor, she tries to, I guess, do that for him too, to make sure he has a, a Hollywood career. Mm-hmm. So, and that wasn't at all unusual. We, we talked about Ava Gardner, for example, but we didn't mention that there was something called the Sinatra Clause because his, his career was on the skids and she was a huge star. Mm-hmm. She made it a condition of, of her contract that he had to get offered parts, which didn't ultimately happen. But, it, you know, there's a lot of, you know, insider mockery, apparently, of this. Right. And it seems like in order to keep Elizabeth Taylor happy, they give a contract to Michael Wilding and you know, and it doesn't work out well. He gets a series of the worst roles anyone ever had in yeah. Hollywood. I don't think intentionally, just the way it worked out. Yeah, and he resents it. You know, he it's a, yeah. it's emasculating to him. And so, so just to recap, Nikki Hilton, um, uh, from the age yeah. of like you know eighteen to nineteen ish, mm-hmm. um, then she marries Michael Wilding when she's I think in nineteen fifty two or fifty three. She's about twenty mm-hmm. twenty one. She gives him uh, gives him she gives him two sons. Uh, she <laughs> have these two sons. <laughs> they got yeah. two, they got two, have two kids. Two sons and um and then in in so she divorces michael wilding around mm-hmm. 56 i want to say 56 mm-hmm. 57 and and she's and marries she's being courted yeah. kind of at the same time by the legendary yeah. producer mike todd who in a lot of ways is her match he's like you know 20 years older uh a very strong personality and knows what he wants and liz always did like a she likes a strong man she does not deal you know michael wilding was a little more yielding she kind of Mm -hmm. enjoys the clash of powers that she that -hmm. she enjoyed with someone like mike todd they fought a Mm -hmm. lot but they had a very passionate in her memory very loving relationship um Mm -hmm. she had a daughter with him liza named after liza minnelli who she knew his little girl and loved Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. um 
And then, unfortunately, Mike Todd dies in a plane crash in 1958 Mm -hmm. on his plane called the Lucky Liz, uh, Mm -hmm. tragically and ironically. Mm-hmm. And this devastates her. She, this is the closest she comes to like losing her mind. And mm-hmm. she's actually making pro- what is probably one of the best films of her career, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, at this point. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. probably used a lot of the, you know, like um, emotions of that tragedy in for her role in Maggie the Cat mm-hmm. as Maggie the Cat. Yeah. Um, should we, is it time for Eddie? Well, let's let's just hold off on it to talk about a little bit about Cat on Hot Roof because she's you know she's going to have a Tennessee Williams connection. She'll go on to Suddenly Last Summer. Yeah, but it's another of the films where everyone's eyes pop because she's so good. Yeah, so that should just be noted. And again, a lot of people did it, attributed it to, and she even did. She even said, you know, I, I was able to throw myself. It was the saving of me. I was able to be sane and functional while I played art. Right. <laughs> you know, they were only two weeks into filming, I think, when like like Todd died. Right. So, so, she just has to go on um walt uh, so yeah that's pretty harrowing but it's great and it allows a a level of wonderful bitchery to come out in her persona which boy is she ready (laughs) to unleash that and and it's she's marvelous she's a natural at it yeah but at at the same time you've got that quality of sympathy you know you Mm -hmm. you're with her Mm -hmm. you're supposed to be admittedly supposed to be with the maggie the cats of the world who will fight to live <laughs> and fight to do well in life even if they have to be ruthless you're supposed to be for that rather than for paul newman's character which is the bricks of the world who just give up right and flop um so you know so it's a really ideal perhaps one wouldn't have thought tennessee williams would be such a perfect match for her uh-huh. it, he is it just turns out that she's great in tennessee williams part, so. yeah and again i think i mean really it's because tennessee williams is about sex <laughs> and, yeah. And, yeah. and so is elizabeth taylor you know and it, mm-hmm. it's a relation to sex that's complex and, tr- and contradictory again mm-hmm. contrasted to like a marilyn monroe type of sexiness which although very mm-hmm. sexy is not a complex you know uh portrayal and it's undemand it almost always is presented as undemanding on the male and that's why the men love her it's just like just seems like oh <laughs> exactly <laughs> no prob what with whereas with elizabeth taylor it's like oh nothing but props yep. but on the other hand look at her <laughs> yeah <laughs> she's so incredible yeah, yeah. yeah and of course the the whole plot of cat on hot tin roof was you know why won't brick sleep with maggie you know yeah who wouldn't sleep with elizabeth taylor is it, it really charges the material so we it's a real conundrum (laughs) (laughs) paul newman are you blind you must be gay i guess you must be gay even if they can't say it explicitly in the late 50s yet they can hint around a lot because there's got to be something yeah and and we covered this film cat on a hudson roof in more depth in our tennessee williams episode so if you want to hear more about it check it out there but yeah like eileen was saying tennessee williams is really like another rung up for elizabeth taylor like you know Mm -hmm. it's one thing to be a success in movies like giant a place in the sun there's still movie movies and not quite Mm -hmm. tennessee williams had won the pulitzer prize for cat on a hot tin roof on broadway Mm -hmm. um and you know we're starting to get into the oh like oh that's you know an important sort of american writer um Mm -hmm. so she's getting a little more respect and she is nominated for best actress for for Mm -hmm. cat on a hot tin roof which she probably should have won but scandal ensues um <laughs> yes yes so all right <laughs> so eddie she's ditched she's ditched what michael mike todd is done yep mike todd and elizabeth taylor's well mike todd's best friend was eddie fisher mm-hmm. supposedly 
This, and the crooner, Eddie Fisher was married, right? If, yes. if you don't know Eddie yeah. Fisher, yeah, he was a hugely famous for for a short time in the fifties. Um, and he's married, you know, America's sweetheart. Betty, I thought Betty, uh, Debbie Reynolds, and for a while they are called as a couple America's sweethearts because they're such a beloved, cutesy couple. Yep. So the two couples would hang around together, even though Elizabeth Taylor at the time and Debbie Reynolds don't have a lot in common. Um, they would all hang around because the two men were such good friends. Mm-hmm. Um, later, of course, they all you know, Elizabeth Taylor and Debbie Reynolds make it up. We'll get to that later. Uh-huh. Um, it's a good story how Carrie Fisher intervenes and <laughs> works that out. But at any rate, um, so when Mike Todd dies, she draws very close to Eddie Fisher. As she says it, we're basically, between the two of us, we were trying to keep Mike Todd alive a few more years. Mm-hmm. That's how they wind up having an affair. That's how they wind up getting married. But it outrages the, you know, the entire nation and perhaps beyond. Yeah, um, that she has wrecked the what, what everyone thought was this ideal, adorable um, marriage between Eddie Fisher and um, Debbie Reynolds. And I forget she had two tiny children, right? Three. She, I think she's she's a, got three. She's already got. Oh, she's got three. Yeah. Oh, I thought she only ever had two. No, two. Anyway, two sons from Michael Wilding and then Liza Todd. Oh, no, I, I meant Debbie Reynolds. Oh, shit. Just her, two kids. Little Todd and her little Carrie. Yeah, and their and her child is named after Mike Todd. Todd yes. Fisher. Yeah. Todd Fisher. So it's just such an yikesy, oh. <laughs> awful, scandalous situation that, you know, the press is just living off this. And, you know, and everyone is, it seems, is on Debbie's side as the wronged wife. Mm-hmm. And people are outraged by Elizabeth Taylor's behavior. Yeah. And there's so anyway, they get they get married. She converts to to Judaism. You know, Eddie Fisher's Jewish. And Mike was Mike Todd thing. was Jewish. So Mike Todd was Jewish. Yeah. And they stay married for a few years, and then she she does something that, of course, turns the the that already scandal into the ultimate. Oh my god! Perhaps the ultimate film star scandal that can never be topped because it was so epic. Yeah, y'all, we're gonna need a separate episode for this. So we're you just to even <laughs> deal with Cleopatra, Richard Burton. Oh my god! Yeah, so, so we're ramping up. Like now, we're in the late fifties with Liz. She's just just done Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. Um. Probably she has lost the Oscar because of the Eddie Fisher scandal. And Mm -hmm. I should say, like, this Eddie Fisher scandal, uh, it went public. Like, there were protests outside of theaters that said, like, (laughs) homewrecker Liz. No no one's giving Eddie Fisher shit, by the way, for leaving his wife and two kids. Um, Mm. It's all Liz's fault. Many photos are published. There was kind of like an unfortunately... illustrative photo taken right before Mm -hmm. Mike died with Eddie Fisher in the middle, Debbie Reynolds dressed demurely in white Mm -hmm. with like a high Mm -hmm. neck on on one side (laughs) and Liz with her, you know, plunging neckline in a black cocktail dress and like diamonds and emeralds looking every Uh inch of the Black Widow. Um, Uh And Uh so, you know, this photo was like, I can't even tell you the Brangelina scandal has like nothing on this. (laughs) There was nothing. It was nothing. (laughs) Well, and I think it should it's it's notable. You know, of course there's misogyny involved in blaming her but not Eddie Fisher. But on the other hand, there's logic. Who's the powerful one? Yeah. You know it's her. It is. <laughs> so just assuming that she did it, she's such a siren that she single-handedly he had no say. You could believe it. Because he's such a weak guy. It's he looks like a weak guy. He's such a you know? little nebbish. Like if you, he I is. really recommend. I read his autobiography called "Been There, Done That," where he did. <laughs> it's great because, like, all you know, all of the um, sort of lines. What do you call it when you usually get quotes from other authors? Why is that escaping me? Um, 
Well, what it's escaping me too. Yeah. What? Uh, but all, all of all of the like uh, lines on the cover of the book are quotes from his ex wives, like disgusting, <laughs> vile. <laughs> so it's like that's great. It's great. It's like Debbie, Liz, and he later married uh, Connie Stevens. Um, uh-huh. He's such an asshole. But I mean, he does say he's like I can't. He's like I can't help it. Like sex with Elizabeth Taylor was just like it was so worth it. And I think I mean she really like turned to sex. I think at this point, um, like mm-hmm. as part of her grieving you know that was definitely mm-hmm. the thing and like eddie was willing and able to serve <laughs> so, <laughs> i don't know it sounds like she was pretty messed up like she was a, a, on a lot of um she was on pills at this point uh, and yeah. you know just like using sex as an escape um mm-hmm. but anyway you know you one could uh, who can blame eddie fisher you just can't blame eddie fisher um <laughs> I don't blame Eddie Fisher. Um, And then, so 58 is kind of on a hot tin roof. And then Mm -hmm. she's starting to become even more defiant with her home studio MGM. And she's tired of being Mm -hmm. in these like shitty little films. She does suddenly last summer, another Tennessee Williams work directed by Mm -hmm. Joe Mankiewicz. Um, Mm -hmm. Pretty good. Uh, Mm -hmm. Insanely fabulous film. Um, Mm -hmm. Her, Mm -hmm. you know, she's not even the highlight. Um, the, <laughs> yeah, yeah. We don't it, again. Again, we we talk about that a lot in the Tennessee Williams episode. If you're, if you're please if you're, refer. Is back. there anything we need to? If, if is there anything we need to pull out? I mean, she does the epic. She has to tell this harrowing story, and it was a hugely tense thing. It was going to be, you know, it's a huge ass monologue, and she really had to build up, <laughs> you know, levels of prep and hysteria to get there, which it probably wasn't that hard. I mean, maybe it was, but you know, she had plenty to work with by that stereo-wise. Yeah, it's so interesting because it is about the murder of a, it's about the ca- literal cannibalization yeah. of a of a young gay or youngish gay, gay man um by gay man. by a bunch of um trade <laughs> by a bunch of young Spanish kids on. that he's been preying yeah. on. Um and they the the story plays out literally across her face. They do this crazy split screen and the it's mm-hmm. like the homosexuality of Sebastian, this this man mm-hmm. who dies is it like plays out on her body it's like crazy and could only happen in the 1950s with this this confusion between like like you know elizabeth taylor's like crazy hysterical femininity Mm. and fears about both communism and homosexuality you know it all comes together this like very hysterical like embodied uh uh, finale to this film which we recommend highly enough um oh no and it and it is worth noting that yeah her sexuality I'm sure a large part of it is just her plus the scandal becomes very much the focus. So they they promoted the film with the shot of her in the scandalous white bathing suit. That's part of the plot mm-hmm. that, her, her, that Sebastian would put her in this incredibly, it turns, it makes her look nude when she gets it wet and it lures in all of these young kids that he's then going to go prey on. Right. Um, so yeah, so it's a dress, it's a bathing suit that she's horribly ashamed to wear in the movie, but of course became, becomes the selling point of the movie on all of the posters. So scandalous Liz is what, 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 what you're selling. Right. Right. And then, so she's got one less contractual obligation film for MGM before her contract is up. It's a movie called Butterfield Eight. She plays basically a high-class call girl. I think we're going to save the story. The the film actually wins her an Academy Award, but not for the reasons you might think. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and it's all part of uh, the deal she agrees to after MGM. She's almost ready to like quit the movies and just go live her mm-hmm. life Ava Gardner style. But mm-hmm. 20th Century Fox is making Cleopatra. And they, uh, the public demands Elizabeth Taylor. And so <laughs> they say, you know, they offer her the role and she flippantly says, I'll do it for a million dollars. No, no film star has ever gotten a million dollars up until this point. And they say, okay. And the rest is yes. history. <laughs> and later she says, if someone was stupid enough to offer me a million dollars to do a part, I certainly wasn't stupid enough to turn it down. Yep. <laughs> Which is a great line. Yep. And and so we're going to next time we'll pick up with Elizabeth Taylor, The Last Star Part mm-hmm. Two. And we're going to talk mm-hmm. about Cleopatra, the film that kind of brought down the studio system. And then we'll talk. Right. We'll talk about the afterlife of Elizabeth Taylor's career, uh, including her um, slate of films with her fifth and sixth husband, Richard Burton. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Very important. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't get that nailed down. Yeah. <laughs> So much material, but that is it for our Elizabeth Taylor episode, part one. Part Part one. Thank you. you. Dear listeners, of course, triple thanks to um, our subscribers who keep us in white diamonds. White diamonds, that's Elizabeth Taylor's second perfume. We'll get to her era of entrepreneurship as well in the second episode. If you're not a subscriber yet, but you like what you hear, please consider signing up for Patreon. For all the films content instead of just the half, publicly available and you can follow news of the podcast on facebook instagram and twitter um and you know keep joining us for our ongoing series of great old broads um we've got a bunch of them running um from um august start of august into the fall and until next time thanks a lot for listening thank you everyone bye-bye bye